All right, so why don't you turn your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to spend a little time in this verse today. This is really Paul's sort of single verse summary of the whole chapter. I just realized I forgot something completely about the announcements. Can we roll that video at the end of, of service today? All right, good. We're good to go. My daughter gave me her little thumbs up. I love that. We have a video to share with you guys about Connect Conference, which we'll, we'll do that at the end of service today. Just if I forget, and I probably will, just start flailing your hands in the air and let me know that we have something left still yet to do. So we're going to unpack this verse a bit because there's so much really in here. It's, it's just a single verse, but it summarizes so much of what Paul has covered in chapter 15, and he's made really in chapter 15 a logical case for the resurrection and the hope of the resurrection. So he kind of gives us three different things in one verse. He gives us a reminder pointing us back to what he's discussed, you know, reminding us of what our future hope is. He gives us an exhortation which kind of ties into how then we ought to, to respond knowing this truth. And then he encourages us to persevere in that. So let's, let's read the verse uh, right together here. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So the very first thing, his reminder, right, he's giving us perspective. He says, therefore, now, there's many therefores in Scripture that we've seen if we've been reading the Bible for a while, if we've been coming to this church for a time. You know that therefore is there for a reason, right? There's a a reason for it, and it's pointing back. It's almost like sort of the scientific... uh, clause of of cause and effect, right? That process. For every effect, there is a cause. When there's a cause, there is an effect that follows. If you kick me in the knee, uh, that's the cause of the pain that will be the effect, right? Or I might have a reflex and, you know, kick you back accidentally, of course, never intentionally. But there's cause and effect. And the scriptures are replete with that sort of uh, approach to what God tells us. He declares the truth. He does a work. That is a cause, and there is to be an effect, and God is expecting and looking for that effect, and there should be an effect. See, God's work of redemption, which Paul has just finished discussing in the all throughout chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, this work of redemption and the promise, the guarantee of our future resurrection, being, ri- being risen to life in Christ has and causes many effects. And we all live out these effects on a regular basis. Guys, we're here today as an effect of that cause because God has touched our lives. He's redeemed us. He's made us his own. He's changed us. He's brought us together. Now we come together and we celebrate this new life that we have together. We celebrate the one who accomplished that work We celebrate what we are waiting for together, even as we sang today, and that's so cool to see how the Lord arranged these texts for us in the the worship time. 
You know, just being the, the victory that we will proclaim and, and, and celebrate for eternity with the Lord, being in his presence. This is what we are looking forward to. But on a daily basis, you see, because God has loved us, therefore I love him. Cause and effect. The Bible declares this. We love him because he first loved us. God has blessed us. Therefore, right? Therefore, I serve him. It's the overflow of that blessing in my life. Now I want to take what I have. And it it, it translates into action. God has saved us and changed us. Therefore, we worship him like we are doing today. Cause and effect. And so specifically, what is this cause that we're talking about, well, number one, it's, it's the victory in death that Paul has just told us about in the preceding verses, that the power of death has been eliminated. It has been disabled by the work of Jesus on the cross for us. So now for us, death is merely a doorway into our ultimate reality, our ultimate future, which is eternity with the Lord. Death has no power over us, right? He covers that in verses 50 to 57. So this is a, a, a great celebration. We look forward to that moment when we change our wardrobe, right? When mortality puts on immortality, and all of this is going to change, right? So if you thought I was really ugly now, um, you don't have to put up with that for eternity. It's going to get better, I trust, But all of this is made possible because Christ has given us victory over death. And so this means then, brothers and sisters, that our our outlook on life is not YOLO, right? You've heard of YOLO. You only live once, right? That's not our perspective. We understand that this is not the only life we have to live. This world and all that is in it is not all that there is. And so our redemption then changes everything, number one, because Jesus restores us to God. And no matter what life may throw at you and at me, we know that we are made right with God. And this gives us a premise for joy, for encouragement, for strength, for hope. And in Christ, we, we, we have joy knowing that glory awaits us. Right? The dead in Christ, Jesus says, he will raise them up in the last day. They will live again. John chapter 6, verse 40. And so we in Christ here will be reunited and see each other again. So I hope we're getting along now because we're going to be together for a long time. Well, we trust that when we are in his presence, we will be changed even more. So whatever those annoyances are, they will be gone. But also, because there is victory in death, we have power in life now. And this is a truth that we want to really apprehend. You see, the gospel is not just for when we die. We, we talk a lot about that. We speak of the gospel as it pertains to salvation from eternal judgment. And yes, that is true. But we need to also speak of the gospel and, and, and perceive or I should say, understand, apprehend the reality that the gospel is for life, not just for rescue from death. 
The gospel impacts our entire life. The gospel changes our perspective and gives us power to live today. We can have joy and peace that surpasses understanding regardless of our circumstances. That, friends, is power for today. When you are no longer held captive by your finite fears, by your finite weaknesses, when you're no longer held captive by your circumstances because you've learned that you are first a prisoner of Christ and not of the world around you, and your perspective has changed, now you're able to rise above the circumstances. God elevates you to a new perspective, and you're able to have joy when others might be looking saying, why, how could you have joy? You're able to have peace when others look at you and say, how could you have peace right now? It's because you have a different foundation. And in Christ and because of the gospel, all of our deepest longings as human beings, the very psyche and, and, and composition of our soul, our deepest longings, our deepest needs relationally are first and foremost fully met in Jesus Christ. We're able to have with Jesus what no other relationship on earth can give us entirely. That doesn't mean that the gospel doesn't affect every other relationship and it doesn't make other relationships better. It absolutely does, and we're going to talk about that a bit. But first and foremost, friends, we lack nothing for life because of Jesus. We are complete in him both before God and before man. And our identity is not in our profession of work, but in our profession of faith. We understand who we are. As people made in the image of God who were once lost and separated from him because of sin, but now have been made right with him again, and our fullest identity is truly known. And we begin to live that out. This is power for life, power for the present. And you know what? No matter what the circumstances may be, what is happening now, the best is yet to come. Do you believe that? I'll tell you that as crazy as I am, that reality has helped me to stay sane through some difficult times. Uh, you know, and I, I, you know, we all have our redemption story, and it's, every single one of them is, is beautiful. It's a beautiful reality. It's a beautiful testament to what grace does. But I remember just something kind of silly, but I'll share it with you. This is a silly thing. But years ago, I was pretty new in the Lord, <clears throat> and um, it was actually just last year. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I was pretty new in the Lord, and I had, a, I had lost my license uh, many times, mostly because of speeding on my motorcycle and sometimes drag racing on the street with cars. But uh, I deserved to lose my license. Nevertheless, if, I don't know if this still exists in New Jersey because I haven't lived in the state for many years, but remember those insurance surcharges that once upon a time, are they still happening? They're ridiculous, aren't they? It has nothing to do with insurance. It's, it's, it's the state, never mind, I'm not going to go there, but I thought they were ridiculous. I still do, but whatever it is, what it is, you can't get your license back until you pay those silly fees. Now, I already paid speeding tickets. I thought that was enough, but now I got to pay these insurance surcharges that the insurance company doesn't even get. And because I couldn't afford to pay them, and I'd have to pay them off slowly, I was 
without a license for a long time, and then I would get tired of riding my bicycle, so I would end up, you know, either taking my motorcycle without my license, and I'd get pulled over again for speeding, and now I'm driving on the suspended list, so it would really complicate things. So anyway, I had all these stacked up, and I said, okay, that's it, I'm done. I'm going to sell my motorcycle, and I'm going to ride my bicycle everywhere. I had this nice mountain bike. Problem was, I lived in Avenel, and I worked in Metuchen, Right? Yeah, oh, you understand. So, and, and what I did was I was a cook. I was a head cook at this restaurant, Crying's of Metuchen. And I would typically work an afternoon shift where I would go in and I'd begin preparing for the night, you know, preparing for dinner. And um, I would end up closing the restaurant. And they also had a bar, so the bar would stay open. And I had to, I had to serve that, the bar food that would go on until 1 o'clock in the morning. And then I would shut down the entire kitchen, clean up, and ride my bike home. Now, this is part of brain damage from, you know, years of abuse and things like that. But I was never smart enough to get the proper gear for riding my bicycle. And so I would ride in the freezing cold rain without any kind of rain gear. I would get absolutely soaking wet. I would ride all year long through all the seasons. And I would show up at work completely drenched, for example. And I would have to stand in front of the oven with the doors open, this convection oven, is to dry myself off, you know, so I could warm up and defrost and, and basically dry off. And I remember riding home at night. I get out after closing the restaurant. It was about 2 in the morning, and I'm riding home, and I know I've got an hour to go, and that's going fast. I was pumping, right? You guys who cycle can appreciate that trip. I would get home about 3 in the morning, and before the, all was said and done, I'm going to sleep at 4 a.m. But I would remember going home in the dark just going, this, abs- this is absolutely miserable. But then I would remember, and I would just say, this too shall pass. (laughs) Even if I have to do this the rest of my life, which is the worst case scenario, eventually I'm going to die. And this will be over. And I won't have to do that anymore. And I'll be with the Lord. See, that's just kind of a silly thing. but, But that's the reality of our future hope. It can be a silly thing. It can be a tremendous thing. But it changes our perspective in the moment. And that's what matters. And that's what Paul is doing here. Christ's victory in death gives us power for life here and now. And listen, guys, the reality is the gospel of Jesus saves souls. It restores relationships. It changes people. changes perspective. Now, see if I can get to the next... uh, we locked up here? Oh, here we go. Let's look at what he says next. We've already read it, but we're looking at his address to the church. He calls them beloved brethren. Now, he's not talking to, uh, you know, the Corinthian men's ministry. When he says brethren, whenever we see this in the Bible, he's speaking to a mixed audience of men and women. And this is because languages and cultures address mixed audiences differently. You know, in the States here, like I would say to you, you know, I might say friends or I might say guys. And I don't really like that word necessarily, but, and it is referring to a, a guy is a male, right? But we say guys for the plurality of the group here. So that's kind of what's happening. Same thing in, you know, Italian and uh, they would say brothers, you know, fratelli, when they're speaking to all the believers. So this is just being used for the mixed group. It's including uh, all the sisters in Christ as well. But he says, 
beloved. And this is where, again, he's pulling in a reality of, for, for perspective, for perspective's sake, right? This is a twofold reminder. Number one, hey, your, your, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and because of that, you are very beloved both by God and by Paul. And this is a beautiful word. It's, we've heard the word agape, right, which is the word used. Um, we we kind of look at that as sort of the, the ultimate expression of love when we speak of the different kinds of love in the Bible. We have agape love, which is the love, the love with which God loves us. It's a love that is unconditional. And the, this word is, is based on that. It's, it's not to be technical, but it's agapitos, and it just means beloved with that kind of special connection to the one who is loving you. We are beloved because there is a special relationship, and it, it's something that there, there are different nuances to this that it's important for us to grasp. This is actually the very same word the Father used when speaking of Jesus at his baptism, and he said, Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is how we are viewed both by God and we are to be viewed by, by one another. In this case, Paul is viewing them as deeply loved. He prizes them. He values them because God prizes them and values them. And this is the reality for you and for me. There is a special relationship in God's family with him, but because of that with each other as well. Now, how would God love the Corinthian church when you know what the church was like? It was a mess, right? That's the reality of God's love. He loves them despite all the inconsistencies they had. He loves them despite all of the problems they were creating. Same with Paul. Paul loved them even though they created problems for him. They made a lot of trouble for him. They disrespected him. They you know, made comparisons between him and other ministers of the gospel saying, who is Paul? Paul's this short kind of weak presence kind of guy. He's not impressive. He's not a big, great orator. And they began to think so carnally because, again, it was that Gentile, Grecian kind of influence. And a lot was put on, a lot of emphasis was put on the, uh, you know, presence of a person. But despite all of that, Paul, Paul calls them, Beloved, and this encourages me. It, both, it encourages me and it challenges me. It encourages me because as I am reminded that I am beloved, that I am considered a, a beloved brother in God's family, it's despite my consistent daily flaws. And you might think I don't have that many, but my wife and my son are sitting right here. My daughter is up stairs in the sound booth, and I can, they'll, they'll fill you in outside, but take a seat, because it's going to take a while. But to be remind, I need to be reminded of this. My soul needs this. You need to be reminded that you are deeply loved by God, first of all, that you're dearly beloved by him, prized and valued, and this reminds us of the relationship we have with him and with one another. And here's a challenge for me. The challenge for me as somebody who is in ministry, and ministry is a messy place, 
it challenges me to love those who are hard to love. And it's not just out there in the world where people are hard to love. Some of you can be hard to love. Can you believe that? No, not you guys. Hey, we're all hard to love at times, right? We're, we're, we're deeply loved, but we're also deeply flawed. And God is working in us, but we haven't left our humanity yet. And so we need to be reminded both for ourselves first that we are loved by God, but also God has called us to see others as beloved brothers and sisters. If we can't do that, right, then Jesus says, hey, listen, if you only love those who love you or are easy to love, how are you any different than the rest of the world, right? This is what sets us apart. So this is our perspective. Now let's move over to our position that Paul gives us next. If I can get it to move. There we go. Notice what he says regarding our position. He says, be steadfast or become steadfast and immovable. This is speaking more now of, of our position, right? This is where, where he's exhorting us. We talked about a reminder, an exhortation, and an encouragement. This is the exhortation part where he's saying, hey, take your position now. Become steadfast in the reality of these things. He pointed back to the rest of chapter 15. He's addressing us as dearly beloved brothers and sisters. Now he wants us to take hold of that. Become steadfast and immovable about these things. This is the, that's the context here, right? And to become steadfast is to be established in something. It's, it's almost like it's such a regularity that we are comfortable in it. And this tells us that, number one, the Corinthian church wasn't yet steadfast and immovable. They were on their way there, but they weren't there quite yet. But it also tells us that they and we can become more steadfast and, and immovable by the work of the Spirit and by our partnership, our collaboration with what God wants to do. You see, God's grace is not a passive thing. God is something we receive, but everything that comes from grace following that is not, we don't, we don't just say, well, okay, I, I've received the grace of God. As Paul says, I've labored more, more than all of the other apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God within me, right? It's the grace that does that. But grace is the cause, and then there is an effect, and we are the ones who actuate on that grace, so, it means that we can actually become, in partnership with what God is doing by His Spirit, we can become steadfast, we can become more immovable, or we, I should say more steadfast and eventually immovable. I kind of compare this to, um, as I was reading this and thinking about it, I, I when I was on staff at the Bible College in California some, some years back, we used to have these staff development days. And uh, the whole staff would, during the summer times, we would take the day that we normally would have staff meeting, we would go to the beach, and we'd choose a different beach each week. It was a great time. The family would come, and we would eat together, and we would do different things together. Usually, we would um, go through a book together and kind of have discussion groups and then just enjoy the beach. And I had come into this, this, this culture with a couple of the guys on, the, on staff who, they, would, they had this thing where they would be like, did you stand your ground? And this whole thing was about getting in the ocean 
and trying to stand in your position and not get knocked over by the waves. And uh, sometimes that's an exercise in futility, right? Depends on the wave. You're not standing no matter what. But you could actually become more effective at standing against the waves. And so we would do this, this thing where we would get in there and there was a whole technique, you know, and you kind of want to make yourself like a blade so the, you know, instead of being a wall, you make yourself like a blade so the wave kind of cuts around you. And we actually got pretty good at it, but we didn't end up eventually getting knocked down by bigger waves. But you see, the idea is that we can learn to respond to grace in that way. Grace motivates us, grace empowers us and enables us, but we respond to that grace and we, we move towards, we, we move towards a better, a greater steadfastness and we are not easily pushed away from our trust in God's work and that's the context here. Be steadfast in our trust about God's work and our future hope. So what he wants us to do, and this is kind of connected to the whole word here, it's, it's, it's a word that's related to being seated or being founded like on a foundation. He's saying, hey, listen, sit down with confidence. Be confident in the hope of glory. Now, hope, this hope that we have in the future, it's not like hoping for good weather in New Jersey, right? I learned very quickly that this area, they say if you don't like the weather, wait 10 minutes, Something like that. Uh, I don't know how anybody can have a job as a weatherman here because you're constantly, um, you're constantly eating your hat. But Christian hope is not like that. The word is translated as hope, but it is not like, well, I hope it kind of goes that way, but it might not. You know, we make plans and we hope the weather is good, but the Christian hope is very different it is absolutely a sure and certain thing. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews in the book of Hebrews calls this hope that we have the anchor of our soul. Our hope is fixed and sure. So we're not hoping that things turn out the way God said. No, we know they absolutely will. And that is where our hope goes beyond this world to a sure and certain future. So God is calling us then to be established in this. Now, how do we become steadfast? Well, you know, you don't have to go stand and, and, and fight against the waves, but very simply, I think Paul gives us a picture of how this happens with the working grace of God. Turn to Colossians chapter 2 for a minute. Again, this isn't a prescription of, hey, do steps number one, two, and three, and, you know, you'll be steadfast. But there is a, there's, a, there's an ongoing process. Chapter 2, verse 6, we'll read through uh, verse 10. He says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, we'll read all the way through verse 10, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and you are complete 
in him who is the head of all principality and power. Now, we just read over it. But notice he starts off, he says, listen, you've received Jesus, so walk in him. Walk in him. And then verse 7, the idea is being rooted and built up in him to be established in the faith. And that's what Paul's talking about here, being steadfast, leading ultimately to uh, an immovability in our life where we're not affected by the distractions, the discouragements, the debates, etc. Now, I have a new appreciation for this word of steadfast and kind of what it means because this week I was doing a lot of landscaping in my front yard and um, <clears throat> I had some really steadfast tree roots, you know, that were in our front, in our, gra- in our property line. And um, I had, because we're changing some landscaping, we had to clean up this area where we're going to put down new, you know, uh, I guess you call it a new bed, right? The soil, and we're going to plant some things. And my dear brother Greg's coaching me on that. And it was ridiculous because every, every 10, 12 cent- you know, inches, I'm sticking the shovel in there to make my edge, and I hit either a rock because the former owners of the house had this crazy obsession with rocks, and they would keep adding to them because they would sink over time in that loamy soil, and they would just add more rocks on top. So I'm pulling out these flat, you know, English garden stone type rocks every 12 inches. Oh, clink, clink. Oh, another rock. I got to dig that out, pull that out. I get the rock out. Oh, I hit a root. Now, I'm not talking about like, you know, little flower stems. I'm talking roots that are like this fat around. So I'm in there, you know, with my saws, trying trying to get this thing out, cut it out. I'm like, this is one steadfast root. And I had this over and over and over again. I don't know how Adam and Eve did it. I don't know how they did it. But by the sweat of my brow, indeed, the scripture is true. So these roots, how did they get that way? How did they get so steadfast? Well, they spent time in the soil. They went deeper. They grew. They became stronger. And now they're well established in that dirt. Very hard to get out. They're not immovable, right? Because that's, that's another word. We haven't got to that yet. But they're very steadfast. And listen, it was, it was challenging to me. Did that just flash? Okay, I thought so. I get those things sometimes, flashbacks, but anyway. Um, So the idea then is, listen, God establishes us, but we as his people, we do the things that need being done, right? We make sure that we're in that soil, that we're going deep, we're, we're living the Christian life, and we're soaking up all the nourishment that God provides us through one another in fellowship, through the word of God in the teaching of the Word of God, and the taking it in, on our, on our, on our, in our daily time, and in worship together. These are the things that make us then grow. We become steadfast. We become well-established. And ultimately, that leads to being uh, immovable, right? So we're seated with, with confidence, and uh, by being steadfast, we end up becoming sort of fixed in our position. We, we can be hit and we can be knocked, but, but we're not going to move. We're not going to be drawn away from our trust in Jesus. And this is kind of a, 
He's just adding on now one more word to strengthen what Paul is saying. He's saying, become steadfast and immovable. And the way I see this is steadfastness will lead eventually to a stability of immovability in your life. Where you're not affected and impacted by the debates. And this is kind of more like, a, instead of being a tree root, you're more like concrete. Where the ingredients, you know, like of, of cement, you know, they kind of get mixed together with the water of the word, right? And it solidifies in the heart. It's firmly, firmly fixed and we're immovable in that truth. This doesn't mean, by the way, that as we grow in the Lord and we become not just steadfast but immovable, that we never change our opinions or our views theologically. I want to point that out because I've, I've encountered a lot of different challenges over the years with brothers and sisters who are just not open to maybe a little bit of correction in a theological idea or a perspective on, on something that the Word of God says. They have their ideas, and they're very fixed in that, and they're not moving, not because it's correct, but because there's stubbornness there. So we don't want to be that. We want to remain teachable and humble, but the idea is as we keep learning and we stay humble, you know, we're, we're, we're not um, moved away and swayed easily in the wrong direction. We are fixed and convinced, or I should say formed and fixed. See that little, little concrete building right there? You like that? Kind of gives the idea, right? All right, lastly, we're moving into our perseverance, and here's where we're going to wrap it up today. We move on from being steadfast and immovable, which is a process and an outcome, to persevering, Paul says, always, that's the continual part, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So that word always kind of sets up both the knowing and the abounding. So we're always abounding. This is, the, first of all, this is, it's not simply quantity. We think of abounding as in quantity. Well, that tree is really abounding in fruit. There's a lot of uh, a fruit on that tree, but that's not actually the, the, the singular idea of this word. It's, it means to be prominent or outstanding. And what I love about that is as we apply that to what he's talking about when we speak of the work of the Lord, it's not just about being busy and doing a lot of things, but it's about overflowing with, with excellence in what we do and who we're being made to be as God's work in us and through us happens. There's not just a lot of it happening, but there's a quality to it. And so as he is giving this to the Corinthian church and, and, and indirectly to you and to me, there is an idea here of, of pursuing on our part an abundance of excellence in the work of the Lord, both in what we do and what God does in us. What He does in us and what He does through us. We can excel in that. And you know, when we see the process of sanctification 
at work in somebody. We, we know, man, God is really working in that person. We're not talking about just quantity. We're talking about quality, quality of character, a different person, a person who's being shaped and molded to be more like Jesus. That's ultimately what Paul is talking about. You see, before we can do something for God, he has to do something in us. Before we can be effective in being used by God, we need to be changed by God. That's why the work of the Lord, first of all, starts with his work in us. And we, we tend to not think of that, but I want us to think of that today. I want us to leave here today thinking, man, abounding in the work of the Lord is what God is doing in me. That's so cool. And we have a part in that, right? You've set yourself up for success in that way by coming here today. Every investment you make in the work of the Lord in you is not in vain in the Lord. That's what Paul is saying. God is continuing to change hearts and attitudes and habits. This is quality. It's character that God is changing. And he uses a lot of different things to change us, give us opportunity to test that change. Route nine. <laughs> when I lived in North Jersey, I used to carry a baseball bat around in my car. This was a long time ago, and I'd take the bat out once in a while on the road, and um, I haven't done that in a while, <laughs> thankfully. Sometimes he uses, I wasn't walking, just to be clear, I wasn't walking with the Lord back then. I have had my moments since then, though, but, you know, since being with the Lord, but not quite that bad. But he uses a lot of different things. It might be a, a difficult job where he's cultivating in you a thankful heart. He's put you in a circumstance where you're learning perseverance. You're learning, hey, I'm going to stay the course. I'm going to do what I'm doing as unto the Lord. Sometimes he will accomplish his work in us through a strong-willed spouse, and when, when two strong-willed spouses come together, there's a whole lot of work that happens. <laughs> God will work through that. But then also, of course, we don't want to forget to touch on God's work through us. You see, ultimately, we are the work of his hands, but we become his hands and his feet to the world. So Christ as the head, he is moving in our life, he is working through us, also working in us, and then we, he touches the world through his people. Right here in this room, God touches the world through you. And everywhere we go, we have an opportunity to impact the world as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And it happens in the simplest of ways. It's not, it doesn't need to be complicated. It doesn't mean that you're preaching the gospel on the corner of the street, although that might be the case. But it might just be simply an act of kindness. It might be a, a, an honest deed. I was out for a ridiculously long run on Friday. And while I'm running, I get a phone call from Will Spillman. And I shouldn't be saying this probably because, well, he probably wouldn't care. But anyway... He had found $100 on the floor in Walmart, and he wanted to know what to do with it. And uh, he was checking his heart. He's like, should I keep it? Should I not? And I said, I said well, um, it's probably mine. I was there about an hour ago. <laughs> I did tell him that. Oh, man. 
So no, don't keep it. Give it back to me. No, I so say he said, he goes, I asked the lady that was in the aisle with me. He goes, I, I, I kind of like asked around a little bit. And I said, well, if you keep asking, you're going to find somebody who says, yeah, it's mine. So maybe the Lord just wants to bless you, you know. But hey, that, that act of kindness, I mean, when you find cash, um, it's very easy for no one to know it. So there he had an opportunity of being a man of integrity. So God wants to do this work in us, and he wants us to have this kind of a goal that we wouldn't just be about busyness and serving, but we would have the perspective that there is a quality of product that God wants to develop, that God is working in you and in me to make not just you know, a lot of things happen, but, but good things. He wants to change me into a better man. He's doing that daily. And sometimes that's a painful process. But no opportunity for all these things, no opportunity is random. God has laid it out, and all we need to do is walk with Jesus, and these things will come to pass. But we need to keep the perspective. We need to take and heed the, the uh, exhortation. And we need to persevere in this. And this is where Paul finishes. He says, always knowing. Knowing that there is a future return on our present investment. That's what he's saying. Knowing that your work in the Lord is not in vain. And by the way, here the word he uses for labor is not the same word as work for the work of the Lord. Here, It's that laborious landscaping type work. My work laboring in my front yard could end up being in vain if, you know, I don't do it right and things come back or a bad storm comes and changes all the soil I put down. And I may have to do it again, but, but what we do in the Lord and what God does in us is never in vain. No investment you make in the kingdom is ever in vain and nothing you do to invest in yourself as a believer is in vain. No circumstance that God uses. So we need to know there is a future return on this investment. We need to see the value of our walk walk with Jesus and our work for Jesus. So there's a future return. We need to always know that. But also, guys, again, nothing that is true in the Scriptures is irrelevant today. It's all relevant for now. So there is also not just a return in the future, but there is a current, present blessing. We get to enjoy the fruit of all this. I get to gradually, sometimes painfully, become a better husband, but then enjoy the fruit of that. I get to become a better father here and now as God is working in me, looking to the future, and I get to enjoy becoming a better father now. The same is for you. Guys, never forget that. I, I kind of was reflecting on the whole never forget 911 thing, and I, I want to create a new one for us today, all right? You ready? Uh, we're not going to say never forget. We're going to say always know 1558. Can you do that? Can you, can, you, can, you, can you remember that today? Always remember. Or you could say never forget 1558. That's today's verse. Always know. Always remember. There is value in all that God does in us and all that God is doing through us. Everything you do to serve the Lord, he's faithful. It's not in vain. Let's pray.